The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, reading verses 22, 23, and 24, that he put off concerning the former conversation the old men, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that he put on the new men, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We come back to a consideration of this great exhortation, and I would remind you as we do so of certain things which are important from the standpoint of structure. The apostle here, you remember, is now applying the truth that he has been laying down in the first half of this great epistle. He has not been teaching them all this doctrine merely for the sake of doing so. He was not a professor of theology, dealing with these matters in an abstract and a theoretical way. He is a pastor, an evangelist, a preacher, and he is concerned about the life of these people, that they should grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. So... Having put the doctrine before them, he now says, you've got to apply this. And his way of putting it is that they must no longer go on living as they formerly did, and as the other Gentiles still do. And he gives them reasons for that. The thing he says is unthinkable, owing to the character of that life, and so on. But here now he comes to a very positive exhortation. He says, if you have rarely learned Christ at all, if you truly have heard him, as the truth is in Jesus, and have been taught in him, well then, he says, you've been taught this, that you must put off that old man and put on the new man. Now, here it is then, and uh, I would remind you again that uh, the exhortation has these two sides to it, the negative, the put off, and the positive, put on connected by this link, which is in the 23rd verse, which is being renewed, going on being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, I was at pains to indicate this, that these two sides must always be taken together. You don't just put off the old men and leave it at that. Neither can you just put on the new men. It's impossible. You can't put on the new men without putting off the old men. So that the two sides should always be taken together. And yet, it is important, obviously, that they must be considered separately. Because we have, actually, to put off the old men. And unless we have done that, I say, we can't go on to put on the new men. And so we are looking still at the negative, the putting off of the old men. We've taken the term in general, put off. We've reminded ourselves that it's like taking off a garment and throwing it aside. We've also tried to consider the meaning of the term the old men, that we may know exactly what we're doing there. And we've also, and this was our theme the last time we were considering this, just before Easter, We've also considered some reasons 
as to why we should do this. And the apostle makes them quite plain. We are to put off that old man, he says, because he is corrupt according to the lusts of deceit. And we considered that the last time, the terrible, horrible nature of that old life, corrupt and corrupting, leading to destruction. It's a life of deceit and of sham and pretense. There's nothing to be said for it. According to the lusts of deceit. Very well, there are our reasons for doing this. That's why we should put off the old men. But now the apostle, as I've been indicating, was concerned here to be very practical. This is the practical section of this epistle. And we'll do violence to his teaching unless we also become practical. So I want to call your attention this morning to the way in which we put off the old men. Or if you like, how to put off the old men. We've seen why we are to put him off. Well now then the next step is, how do we put him off? And this is, I say, a very important and a very vital matter for us. It's not enough just to say, put off the old man, put on the new. No, no, this is something that's got to be done in practice and in detail. And we must know exactly how to do it. Now, it may be that uh, it is at this point that modern evangelicalism shows its greatest weakness of all. This is an aspect of the Christian life that has been sadly and sorry neglected in a for the reason that I'm going to show you. Now, we've often expressed adverse criticisms of Roman Catholicism, and we still do so. But we've got to grant them that in this particular matter, they have a great deal to teach us, the culture of the spiritual and the devotional life. But we needn't go to them. It was the peculiar teaching of the great uh, Puritans of the 17th century. This is the thing they excelled at, this kind of pastoral theology, this teaching in detail as to how this fight of faith is to be fought. But all that, I say, has tended to be neglected by us. And to that extent, we are guilty of uh, doing violence to the Scripture. This is something, then, I say, that's got to be taken in detail. Very well, what's the teaching? Well, here is the first principle. This is something that you and I have to do. It is not something that is done for us. You notice that it is a command. Put off the old man. It's an exhortation. It is, I say, a definite command that he gives to us. Now, let me expound what I mean by that, by putting it again negatively. Putting off the old men is not something that is to be prayed about. Now, that sounds most unspiritual, doesn't it? Fancy a preacher in a Christian pulpit telling people that they're not to pray about this. But it is very essential that we should say that, because there is a tendency on the part of so, much, so many people, whatever the problem is, they say glibly and immediately, pray about it. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Quite simple, they say. You've got nothing to do but pray. Anything worrying, pray about it. No, no, says Paul. You don't pray about this. You put off the old men. Get on with it. Now, there is something almost violent about this. 
and I think it needs violence, because there is a great deal of sickly sentimentality and a false piety concerning this matter. And uh, it leads to people living a kind of spiritual life ever in the doldrums. Of course, we need to pray about everything. Our whole life should be a life of prayer. We should pray without ceasing. What I'm saying is that you don't solve this problem by just praying about it. The apostle doesn't here tell these people, now look here, with regard to this problem, uh, I want you to pray about this. No, no, he says, look here, for the reasons I've given you, put off that old man. You don't pray about this, I'm telling you to do it. Get on with it and do it. Now, people say, oh yes, but uh, what about uh, my lack of strength and of power? Well, there's an answer for that. As a regenerate creature, as a newborn being, you have the power. The New Testament never commands us to do a thing without giving us the power to do it. And therefore there is no excuse at this point. Now this is a very subtle matter, therefore let me put it like this. I suggest that very often people by praying about a matter like this, far from solving their problem, are simply increasing it. Because they pray in a spirit of fear. They say, oh, I'm so weak, I can do nothing. And they pray to be delivered from this thing instead of putting it off. And the whole time, they're in a sense suggesting it to themselves. The way to solve this problem is not, I say, to pray. It is to think and to apply the teaching and the doctrine to put off the old men. Uh, I can't quite recall whether I related an incident to you of a lady who once came to speak to me many years ago about a problem which had been crippling her life for, I think, 22 years. It may sound to you a trivial thing, but it was spoiling her life. She had a phobia, a terror, a horror of thunderstorms. She once had been in a terrible thunderstorm and thought she was going to be killed. And that had fixed on her mind, and it had come to this in the end, that if she were walking to her place of worship on a Sunday morning and happened to see a black cloud, she'd begin to say, ah, oh, there's a thunderstorm coming, and instead of going to church, she'd go home because of her fear. And it had taken many forms. It had prevented her doing many things she'd wanted to do. It had created difficulties in the family and so on. You can see the kind of problem that had arisen. Well, this lady came to talk to me purely as the result of something I said as an aside in a sermon she happened to be listening to. And she stated all this to me. Well, now then, I said, what have you been doing about it? Well, she said, I've done everything I can. She talked to all sorts of people. I said, I suppose you've prayed about it. She said, I pray about nothing else. I'm always praying about it. I said, well, that is probably why the problem has persisted. I said, what you need is not to pray, but to think. And then I pointed out to her simply, what a bad testimony this was in a Christian person such as she was. Had she ever thought of that? Had she ever asked herself the question, why should I be more afraid of a thunderstorm than anybody else? If all those other people can go on and go into the place of worship, why shouldn't I? Why is this some peculiar... She'd never thought of all that. 
But she was praying to be delivered from this fear of thunderstorms. And she'd been praying sincerely and honestly and with great intensity for the 22 years. But the thing was there and it was increasing. There are points, I say, in the name of God and in the name of Scripture, about which you don't need to pray, but you do need to think and to apply the doctrine. You put off the old men. You needn't pray for guidance about this. Having realized his character, put him off. This isn't a matter of praying. This is a matter of doing. And so we see that the devil, in his subtlety and as an angel of light, can sometimes encourage us to pray in a blind and unintelligent manner. Because he knows that as long as we're doing that, we won't think. And we won't face the scriptural teaching and apply it to ourselves and to this particular problem. Very well then, I say, it is not a matter to be prayed about, it's a matter to be done. Or let me put it in another negative. This is not an experience which you receive or which happens to you. You are familiar with the teaching that says to you, whatever problem you've got in your spiritual life, it's quite simple, they say. You've got nothing to do but take it to the Lord and leave it with him. He'll deliver you. Let go, let God. Quite simple, they say. You, you've simply got to take it to him. And then you'll have this wonderful experience of deliverance. Now that teaching has been propagated, as you know, for a number of years now. And there, have been, there are people who've been trying to do this. Trying to let go and to let God. They've been told that if only they do this, they'll be delivered entirely from this particular matter. But they haven't been delivered. They may have had a temporary deliverance while they were in the meetings, but it comes back again. And they've gone on trying to let go, trusting this thing will happen. No, says the apostle, that isn't what's needed. You must put off the old man yourself. You don't ask God to take this from you. You put him off. Now, surely we should recognize that such teaching is quite unscriptural. If that uh, teaching were true, well then this whole section of this epistle to the Ephesians from the 17th verse of this chapter to the end of the epistle should never have been written at all. The apostles shouldn't have written these words and he shouldn't have gone on to say, wherefore put away lying, speak truth, to every man to his neighbor, be ye angry and sin not, neither give place to the devil, let him that stole steal no more. He wouldn't have said all that, it would have been wrong for him to say it. He'd have said, look here, if any of you are tempted by this matter of stealing, pray about it. Let go and ask the Lord to deliver you from it. But he doesn't say that, he says, look here, you who've been given to stealing, stop doing it. Steal no more, put off the old men. Thus, you see, a teaching which may sound very spiritual can be utterly unscriptural. It not only bypasses the scripture, it denies the scripture. Ah, but they say, surely you receive your sanctification as you received your justification. You received your justification by faith, you took it by faith, and must, you must do the same here. But that's where the fallacy comes in. In the matter of justification, it is entirely by faith. Why? Well, because one has no spiritual life, one has no ability at all. That is entirely by faith. But not so this. 
But says someone, hasn't Paul said in chapter 2, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works? Of course, that's justification, that's regeneration. We are entirely his work there. But remember that the same Paul who writes, we are his workmanship, also says to those who have been made, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's it, put away put off, put on. We are his workmanship, of course. We can't do anything until he's made us anew. But once he's made us anew, well, then we are capable of working. So he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Justification is by faith only. Sanctification is not by faith only. The whole of the Christian life is a life of faith. But in sanctification, we have to work and to work out and we have to put off, and we have to put on, and so on, and all these details which he gives us here. Very well, then, this is obviously a very vital matter. We start by realizing that this is something that we have to do ourselves. It isn't done for us. We don't just wait passively or relax and have the experience of it all being taken out of us. Not a bit of it. Put off. Stop doing certain things, he says. You and I have literally to do this ourselves. And oh, I say again what a tragedy it is that men and women should have thought that it was to be highly spiritual to deny this plain command, exhortation, and teaching of the Scripture. That other teaching, as I've often pointed out, really means that the second half of every New Testament epistle should never have been written at all. All the apostles should have said, at, either at the beginning of chapter 4 or in verse 17, is just this. Very well now then, in the light of this doctrine, all you've got to do is to let go, to abide in Christ, and all will be well with you. You'll be delivered from all your problems. It's quite simple. It's just like lifting up the blinds and letting the sun come in. There's no more to be done. That's all he need have said. And all the other writers. But you notice that they give about half of their letters to detailed practical instructions. They tell people what not to do. They tell them what to do. Clearly, these two teachings are quite incompatible. But the teaching of the scripture is... Put off. It is something that you and I have to do ourselves. And as I've reminded you, it's no use saying we haven't the strength you have. If you're the Christian, it's there. God never commands a man to do a thing without enabling him to do it. If you and I are born again, the Spirit of God and of Christ is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. The power is there. And we have to realize that and in the strength of that might and power, we act. We do this thing. Now then, how do we do it? That's the second matter, the practical. There's the principle. Now then, the practical application. And here are some of the things which are essential. And they're all simple and practical. The first is we have to remind ourselves of who we are and what we are. You've always got to start with it. 
The apostle indeed has been telling us to do that. He says, put off this old man because of his character and put on this new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. We are no longer what we were. That's his argument. Well now then, the first thing we have to do is to tell ourselves that. The whole art of Christian living is to know how to talk to yourself. If you don't preach to yourself, you're not a Christian. A Christian is a preacher. He preaches to himself. And this is the essence of Christian living. You start your day by telling yourself, now then, I am the new man. I'm no longer the old man. My old man has been crucified with Christ. My old man is dead. Finished with him. He's non-existent. I am no longer what I was. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You start the morning by saying that to yourself. Now, it won't be said to you. It won't happen automatically to you. The devil will speak to you the moment you wake up. And he'll say a thousand and one things to you to try and depress you before you've started. Therefore, you and I have to make a resolution. We're going to get up and we're going to say, our waking thought shall be, I am a new man in Christ. That's the way to do it. It literally has to be done in detail in this way. Now, I think you see at once that it's not surprising why we fail so much. We don't start like that, do we? Oh, we say, here are these thoughts again and here's the problem, another... Eighteen hours or so before me, what can I do? And we're already defeated. No, no, says Paul, get up, put off the old man. That's the way you used to think. You were under all this, it was on top of you. But that's no longer the case, you're on top now. Christ has come into you and has delivered you. Therefore, so you don't hurry out of your bed and get on your knees and say, Oh Lord, deliver me, keep me this. No, no, before you pray, you remind yourself of who you are. Because if you pray in that depressed way, you're not really praying in the spirit at all. It's a prayer of unbelief, not of belief. So we can't really pray until we are clear in our doctrine. We remind ourselves who we are before we go to God. There's the first thing. Then. Well, then the second follows, obviously, doesn't it? You remind yourself again of the nature and the character of that old life. It's depicted here in these terrifying verses, 17, 18, and 19. It gives his little summary again in verse 22. You see how concerned the apostle is that we shall do this in detail. He won't let us escape it, you see. He keeps on reminding us of the character of the life. He says, hold that before you. And this, I sometimes think, is the whole art of triumphing in the Christian life. I suppose I have to say this more frequently than, any, than anything else in my pastoral work. People come about particular problems and they've been praying to be delivered and so on. I say, now wait a minute. Have you ever really looked this thing in the face? You're frightened of it. You're running away from it. You're, you're cowering. Your whole attitude is wrong. I say, wait a moment, examine this thing, put it up in front of you, analyze it and dissect it, see it for what it tells. That's half the battle. And then, says Paul, you'll see that the whole thing must be got rid of. 
Look at it, face it, instead of running away from it. That's the second thing. And then here is a third point. Remind yourself and impress upon yourself the utter inconsistency of claiming to be a Christian but continuing to live in that way. So obvious, isn't it? And yet how we all fail to do it. You have to look at yourself, you have to look at that old knife, and you say, well, now it is impossible. The thing is utterly inconsistent. You say, I have no use for a man who's inconsistent. I have no use for a hypocrite, a man who says one thing and does the other. Well, very well, what am I? How am I living? What do I claim? As a Christian, as a member of the church, whether I like it or not, and whether I understand it or not, I am making a tremendous claim. As a Christian, as a man who calls himself a Christian, I am saying that I am a partaker of the divine nature, that Christ died to rescue me from this present evil world, that I have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's what I'm saying. I am saying that I am a member of the body of Christ, and that by these bands of supply that the apostle has been talking about, that the life of the blessed head is flowing into me. Is it consistent with all that to go on living like this? Is my conduct and my behavior to belong to the old realm when I claim to belong to this new realm? Now, the, the New Testament is literally full of that kind of argument. Listen to Paul putting it to the Philippians, the next epistle in chapter 1, verse 27. Only, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. You see the argument. Is it becoming? Does it fit in with? You're familiar with the argument, the illustration. Don't have a clash of colors in your clothing, says the apostle. Don't dress in a manner that is inappropriate to what you are. Let your conversation, your conduct, be as becometh. The gospel of Christ. See that your whole life is a life that will suggest to people that the Son of God left heaven and came into this world. And that he died upon the tree. And that he rose again and sent the Holy Spirit. Let it be becoming. Now let me tell you another incident. Out of my pastoral experience. Again it sounds simple and almost trivial but you know... I always feel it's one of the greatest things that has ever come within the realm of my experience. You may laugh at this story very well, but this is the story. A certain man in the early 50s who had lived a very evil and a dissolute life. He had lived the life of a drunkard, a fighter, Gambler, wife-beater, adulterer. There was nothing, I imagine, short of murder that the men had not been guilty of. And indeed, he would have been guilty of murder in many a drunken brawl if he'd not been restrained by his own friends. He had a fiendish, foul temper, and he became mad under drink. Well, these men eventually came under the sound of the gospel and was converted. Now, this is where the thing sounds almost ludicrous. But this was the fact. 
This was a tall man, athletic, well-built, a fighter. And uh, there was one thing he was particularly proud of, and that was his moustache. Doesn't it sound ridiculous, but these are the sort of things people are proud of. And he took particular pride in this. It was the length of his moustache from tip to tip. Yes, I do understand the laughter, but uh, I say again, isn't it extraordinary what people are proud of? He, this was his particular matter of pride. And the cause of his, most of his fightings happened to be this, these moustaches of his. Because, you see, this was the sort of quarrel that arose. A man would challenge him that his moustache measured more from tip to tip than his. And so the quarrel began and they ended in fighting. And he was proud of this. No man could stand up to him, either in this length or in his prowess as a fighter. And there he came to the church and he was converted. And we all saw all this. But this is the story. Some six weeks after that man's conversion, he came to a weeknight meeting and I noticed immediately as he came in that the moustaches had gone. He'd not merely cut off these ends, but he'd shaved off the entire moustache. And my immediate reaction was one of annoyance. I said to myself, some busybody in this church has told this man to do that. Of course, the thing was laughable. The thing was quite foolish to see a grown-up man with these enormous moustaches. And I thought some busybody had gone to him and had told him to shave off his moustache. So at the end of the meeting, as he was going out, I stopped him. I said I wanted a word with him. And I said, who told you to get rid of these moustaches? Nobody's. I said, now come along. Don't you shield anybody. Uh, this kind of busybody does great harm in the church. These self-appointed spiritual detectives. I'm out, uh, I'm out to get rid of them, I said. You tell me the truth. I said, who told you to get rid of those moustaches? He said, nobody's told me. And I pressed him hard. He persisted. Well, I said, well, why have you got rid of them? Well, he said, I'll tell you. He said, I was getting up actually this morning. He said, and I'd washed. And I'd gone to the looking glass, he said. And I was there, he said, brushing my hair. And I suddenly saw my moustaches. And I said to myself, them things don't belong to a Christian. So I cut off the ends, he said, and I shaved off the rest. Now that man couldn't read nor write. He'd lived such a dissolute, evil life. He'd been brought up in that way. He literally couldn't write. He couldn't read. And that was his expression. Them things don't belong to a Christian. Illiterate and ignorant, yes. But he'd been born again and the Spirit of God had come into him. And the Spirit of God with its unction and anointing had taught him the lesson. Them things don't belong to a Christian. Put off the old men, and he'd put him off in that respect. They belonged to the old life. They had nothing to do with this new life. So he'd put them off. Very simple, isn't it? Ignorant, illiterate men. 
I would to God that this church were full of such people. I see Christians today, even deliberately it seems to me, putting on the old men. Putting on things that belong to the life of the flesh and the devil and the world. And they have not yet realized that them things don't belong to the Christian. That's the argument of the apostle. Work it out for yourselves, my friends, in detail. The Christian should not even look like the typical man or woman of the world. There are certain things that are incompatible with this new life. Put them off. Get rid of them. Very well, let's go on to the next step, which is this. I quote to you a word again of the apostle in the next chapter. Have no fellowship. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Now, the material point here, the operative phrase is, no fellowship. In other words, he says, have nothing at all to do with them. Be drastic. Have no dealings at all with them. The important principle, it seems to me, is this. Watch the beginning. Have no parleying. Have no discussion. Have nothing at all to do with sin if you're a wise man. Put off the old men altogether. Haven't we all proved this in experience? The moment you even listen to the devil, you're practically gone. If you have a discussion with him, it's certain that you're defeated. Don't have any talk with the devil. Have nothing to do with him at all. Don't speak to him. Don't be on speaking terms with him. If you begin to talk to the devil and listen to him, and to say, well, no, why not? I want to understand. You might as well fall to the ground. You're already beaten. He'll beat you every time. He's subtle. He's clever. He's brilliant at the art of repartee. He knows all the arguments. If you begin to have any parleyings with sin, you're done for. Have nothing to do. Have no fellowship at all with the unfruitful works of darkness. I'll put that as an ex-principle, if you like, like this. If you're doubtful about a thing, don't touch it. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. He that eateth and doubteth is damned if he eateth, says Paul, in the 14th of Romans. If you're in doubt about a thing, well, very well say no. Err on that side rather than on the other. Things that are even doubtful should not be touched. But then I come to another positive injunction which I want to emphasize, which is again a direct quotation from Scripture. In Romans 13, 14, the apostle says this, Make not provision for the flesh. What a statement. Make not or no provision for the flesh. Romans 13, 14. What a tremendous thing it is. You remember the part this played in the life of St. Augustine. What does he mean by saying we shouldn't make provision for the flesh? What he means is this. Don't be fool enough to feed that old man that is in you. Don't be fool enough to lead yourself into temptation. Don't you make provision for your flesh, the thing that gets you down? 
How do you do that? Well, I'll tell you how you do it. There are certain places that are bad for you. Stay out of them. To go into such places is making provision for the flesh. You know it certainly before you go in that if you go in, it will stimulate the flesh. That's making provision for the flesh, therefore, to go into such a place. Places. But not only places, but also people. If there are certain people that always have a bad effect and influence upon you, avoid them. Put off the old men. You don't pray about this. You don't argue. You don't need special guidance about this. If experience teaches you that such a person invariably tends to have a bad influence upon you, avoid such a person. Make no provision for the flesh. And likewise, as I've often pointed out, with reading, I have no hesitation in saying that the newspapers, the popular newspapers of this country today, are undoubtedly the worst influence of all as regards the spiritual life. They're full of suggestion and innuendo. So be discriminating and careful as you read your newspaper. Avoid that which tends to harm you and to drag you down. Make no provision for the flesh. Listen to it in the Old Testament. Listen to Job. Job, you see, what a godly man he was, what a good man. But this is what he says. I made a covenant with mine eyes. That's Job 31.1. I made a covenant with mine eyes. In the seventh verse of that same 31st chapter, he says, If my step hath turned out of the way, and mine heart walked after mine eyes. You see, your heart goes after your eyes. The eyes are the trouble. And you see something in your heart goes after it. So says Job, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Let me put that positively as you find it in Proverbs 4, 25. Let thine eyes look right on. And let thine eyelids look straight before thee. If there's something there that's enticing, don't look at it. That's what is meant by putting off the old men. Make a covenant with your eyes. Look straight on. Don't let your eyes wander. Don't let them lust after things. Don't let them go from the straight path. This is biblical teaching. You see, you don't just pray about it. No, no, you must just not look. Keep your eyes from things that are likely to entice you or to attract you. Whatever they, whatever they are, make a covenant with your eyes. Look straight onwards. Keep steadfast looking in the direction of God and of heaven and of holiness. Make no provision for the flesh. And then that brings me to the last principle, which is this. And I've tried to put them in an ascending order. Not only must we not make any provision for the flesh, we are actually told to mortify the flesh. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live, says Paul in Romans 8 and 13. And did you notice what we read in Colossians 3.15? This morning he puts it there quite plainly, not in Colossians 3.5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify your members that are on the earth. 
You've got to do it. And I've got to do it. It isn't done for us. It isn't all taken out of us in a marvelous, thrilling experience. No, no. We've got to mortify our members that are on the earth. We've got to mortify the deeds of the body. Through the Spirit, the Spirit is given. We have the Spirit. Well then, says the Apostle, in his power, mortify. What does mortify mean? It means to deaden. It means to deliberately attack. It means to starve so that they'll die of inanition. Withhold food from them. Make no provision for them, in other words. And then another good way of mortifying something is not to use it. If you don't use your muscles, they'll atrophy and you'll become weak. Well, that's a very good way of mortifying. Don't use. Withhold the food and the sustenance and don't use. And as you do those two things, these things will gradually become dead and will gradually become mortified. But let me put it again. The apostle even goes further. We mustn't merely not feed the flesh and the body in this evil sense. We must not only not exercise the body in that respect. The apostle, you remember, went further in 1 Corinthians 9. I therefore so run, he says, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Well, what does he do then? But he says, I keep under my body and bring it unto subjection. Ah, but say these other spiritual people, that's legalism. That's a man doing something, falling back on works. But it's the apostle who teaches it, you know. You've got to keep under your body. Do you know the meaning of that term? Do you know the word that the apostle actually used, which is here translated, keep under the body? This is the literal meaning. To hit under the eye. To buffet or disable an antagonist as a pugilist. That's what the apostle actually said. I hit myself under the eye, he says. I'm like a boxer. I'm not beating the air. I'm pummeling myself. I'm hitting myself black and blue. I'm giving myself black eyes. This flesh that gets me down, I keep under my body. And bring it under subjection. That's Christianity. So you don't say about this, do you? Oh, it's quite simple. Just let up the blinds and the sun comes in. It's all gone. But it doesn't all go. And people who say that know that it doesn't all go. And there have been people for years who have been trying to lift up the blinds and they're still defeated by particular things. Of course they are. They're not scriptural. They're denying the scripture. I keep under my body. I buffet it. I hit it under the eye with all my force. I hate it. I'm up against an antagonist. And as a pugilist, I'm knocking him. And I'm trying to knock him out. That's the scriptural method. So we not only do not make provision for the flesh. We must mortify the flesh. Keep it under. Keep it down. Realizing that unless we do so, it will get us down temporarily. And we shall be living a contradictory life. Well, there is the essence of the teaching. Oh, how I could expend it. And oh, how it was expended. Read John Owen, if you like, on the mortification of the flesh. You'll find it's quite a tome, a volume. Of course it is. These things are going to be worked out in detail. But there I've given you the principles this morning. Then whatever it is that troubles you, put it up and... 
Look at it in the light of all these principles. Don't run away. Don't be frightened. Don't just say, I must try and pray. Look at the thing and work it out. Put it in the light of this context. And then apply these principles and go for it. In the power of the Spirit. Put off the old man. And do that in detail. The apostle goes on to details, as you remember. Lying, stealing, filthy communications... He takes them up one by one and he says you've got to do this with regard to every single item. And thus you put off that old man that is corrupt and dying and decaying according to the lusts of deceit. May God give us honesty. May God open our eyes to the scripture. May God save us from bypassing the scripture and eliminating whole sections of it in the interest of a theory. And as he does so, and as we rise, realizing that we have the Spirit of God within us, we shall find ourselves being enabled to put off the old man. And all that is so horribly true of him, that we no longer may disgrace the fair and the glorious name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Put off the old man. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.